Be open it up to Nehemiah chapter 4. You should have received some message note sheets on the way in. You see appropriately entitled this morning, The Headwinds of Progress. And so we're going to talk about the realities that when you put your hands to the plow of work, be that in a setting like Kevin and his coworkers found himself in, or in your everyday, or students in your classrooms, that as you move towards creating and shaping in the power of God's Spirit, you're going to encounter a consistent reality that I want to call this morning headwinds. And we're going to look at a character named Nehemiah as we've been walking through this series. We spent the last couple weeks laying a theology of work two weeks ago, and last week a theology of calling. So if you're just playing catch up now, I encourage you to go back. That kind of lays the theological groundwork for what this week and next will be, as I wanted to look at two different characters in the Bible who kind of put their, theolo- put their work and their calling into practice and see how it worked in their everyday life. In this case, I'm going to give you a little setting, a little Old Testament history backdrop to Nehemiah. In your notes, you'll see this map, 586 BC, an important event in the Old Testament history storyline. That's the time period when the world superpower at the time named Babylon goes into Jerusalem and destroys the walls, burns the gates, tear, you know, just it takes down the temple, takes 10,000 of the Israelites, uproots them, and moves them 700 miles east into that day, modern-day Iraq, which is the empire known as Babylon in that era. This is known as the exile. For those of you familiar in the Old Testament storyline, this is the exile. And Nehemiah's parents were a part of that group of Israelites who were uprooted and deported 700 miles. So Nehemiah is born in that The place called Babylon, eventually Persia takes over the Babylonian Empire. He's born in Persia. He's raised in a foreign land around settings that he wasn't familiar with. He's he's a long ways from his homeland. This is Nehemiah. He grows up there. He's not a priest. He's not a prophet. He's not a scribe. He's not a religious guy. He's a normal, everyday, day laborer. He eventually finds himself working in the palace of the king. It's called a cupbearer, a day laborer in the king's palace. He's just being a young man growing up, working, trying to find his way in the kingdom of Persia. And in the midst of it, they're there for 70 years. So that's how long the Israelites are in exile. So they're over there for 70 years. Somewhere in that 70 years, his parents give birth to Nehemiah. Nehemiah grows up there. At the 70th year, the leader of Persia named Cyrus, he issues a decree to allow groupings of the Israelites to return home and allows them to go back and begin to rebuild what's been destroyed. Can you imagine the setting that they're going back to and the reports that Nehemiah gets in this setting? They go back in three waves. Zerubbabel leads the first wave back, and then Ezra, and then Nehemiah. And the book of Ezra records the rebuilding of the temple, God's house. And then the book of Nehemiah we're going to get into today records the rebuilding of the wall around the city because Nehemiah gets word that the wall's broken, the gates are burned, the temple, the temple's in shambles, not unlike the images, no doubt, that have been scrolling across our phones with the Ukraine. You need to picture kind of modern day Ukraine situation where you just have 
you know, massive numbers of refugees as we see being uprooted and displaced. And by God's grace, at some point, we're praying the Ukrainian people will be able to return to their homeland. When they come back to it, what will they find? They will find what Nehemiah and his crew found at Jerusalem at that day. And so here's Nehemiah, a young man who's grown up in Persia, who's a day laborer, and he's now commissioned to become the project manager. So those of you in the construction industry, Nehemiah is your man. He's a construction manager on a massive project. Here's the scope of his project. Put a picture up there of the walls for us, please. It's two miles in diameter around Jerusalem. So the project is a two-mile wall, 50 feet high, 10 to 15 feet thick. So there's the scope, construction managers. There's the scope of your work. No power tools, lots of heavy lifting, all stone-based. And so you could just picture the scope, right? Massive project he's going to undertake. And as he puts his hands to this plow, the setting in Nehemiah 4 is he begins to experience headwinds. And his headwinds have names. Do your headwinds have names at the office? Their names are, it's okay, don't list them out. If you're sitting by them, don't say anything, right? So if your headwinds have names, here's Nehemiah's headwinds. He had Sanballat. Say Sanballat. The name means sin has given birth. Thank you, mom. Like, seriously? Shows you where his trajectory of his life's going, right? Sambalas, the governor of Samaria, the territory of, uh, in Israel of that day. So Sambalat, his assistant is named Tobiah. Say Tobiah. And then there's another gentleman named Geshem. Say Geshem. Geshem's an Arab overseeing kind of all of northeast Egypt. So this is the trio of trouble. Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem. They form headwinds to push back against everything Nehemiah is trying to push forward in. And some of you are saying, that's my week. Like, that's the week you had. Like, everything you tried to put your hands to, every part of the project you tried to move forward, you just felt like you had Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem coming and going at you and against you, and that's the setting we find here. So Nehemiah 4, verse 1. Here's the scene. When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews and in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore, notice, their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? Verse 3, Tobiah, remember it's his assistant, the Ammonite, who was at his side said, what are they building? If even a fox climbed up on it, he would break down their walls of stone. So you say, well, why are they so upset? Why, are they, why do they want to resist this project so much? Because listen, if you're Sambalot, Tobiah, and Geshem, here's what you don't want to see. You don't want to see a re-energized and reinvigorated Israelite people. A rebuilt wall and a restored temple and renewed gates equaled Israelites are going to have kind of a fresh wind in their sails. It's much easier to oppress people who are kind of defeated and depressed. You with me? So leave them in the state of feeling like their lives look like their landscape. It's just a rubble everywhere. Don't give them hope of actually beginning to rebuild. And so when Nehemiah and the project team gets going, these guys just want to basically ridicule, make fun, make their life miserable 
and difficult. So as Nehemiah steps into the chaos, remember we talked about theology of work is we step into the chaos of our work settings. The reason our work setting, the reason you're in the work setting is so chaotic, one of the reasons is God sent you there to be the light of his presence, to bring order, to bring shape to the shapeless and to fill the empty. That's one of the reasons you're there. You're there to move and create and shape in the power of Yahweh's name. And that's what Nehemiah has been appointed to do. Hey, Nehemiah, God says, I got an assignment for you. You're going to lead a big project. You're going to go into a big chaotic mess called Jerusalem and the rubble and the piles. You're going to step into that and you're going to begin to rebuild and create and shape in my name. And as he does that, resistance immediately comes. And so this is the first of three principles today from Nehemiah 4 as we think about the headwinds. Think of these three principles of headwinds. Resistance indicates progress. Resistance indicates progress. So when you begin to embrace your work as an act of worship, when you begin to approach the chaos in your work setting with the light of Christ's presence, here's what you're going to find. There's going to be a push back to your pushing forward. Because when you push forward in the kingdom of Christ, there's a push back from the kingdom of darkness. That's how this works. It's a spiritual dynamic. It's not just physical. Ephesians 6 says, Paul said it this way in Ephesians 6, your battle is not just flesh and blood. It's about spiritual principalities and powers. Translated, hey, all your work dynamics It's not just physical. It's more than physical. There's spiritual dynamics at work. When Kevin and his coworkers are flying the plane, it's not just about the plane and the wind. There is a God who sits enthroned in the name of headwinds to make sure an aircraft doesn't hit the Rocky Mountains, to make sure over the flatlands of Nebraska. You can explain that as coincidence. I choose to explain it as my sovereign Lord. And so here we've got a recognition that the realities in your work setting, do you understand the dynamics, students in your classroom, adults in your workplace, the dynamics are not just physical flesh and blood realities. There's more going on there. In this case, they have names, Sambalot, Tobiah, and Geshem. Because when you give your best to create and shape in the name of Christ by the power of His Spirit, you're going to clash with the forces of darkness. There's going to be a clashing. And that explains the week you had. The reason you're so exhausted at the end of the week. The reason it's complicated. The reason it's difficult. The reason it's messy. You've been running into headwinds all week long. You've been running against the grain that way. You're bringing the light of Christ's presence. And you're clashing with powers that are beyond the physical. Here's what C.S. Lewis said. I put this quote in your notes. There is no neutral ground in the universe. You believe that? There's no neutral ground. Every square inch, every split second is claimed by God or counterclaimed by Satan. Now, if you believe that and you believe Ephesians 6 of what Paul says, if you believe that your battles are not just flesh and blood, they're beyond flesh and blood, watch Nehemiah fully believes that. He's been raised very well by his parents. He has a worldview steeped in Yahweh. He is a God-fearing man. He sees through the physical to the spiritual. So if you believe that, Nehemiah's response shows us what our response should be in the midst of the resistance. Verse 4, what does he do? Hear us, O our God. Parentheses, if you want a great personal study, study the prayers in the book of Nehemiah. He's an amazing prayer. Now remember, 
not a religious scholar, not a prophet, not a priest. He's a construction manager. He's a day laborer. And he's a prayer. And I think in that we get a vision for what it means to put the intersection of our worship on Sunday with our work on Monday. Nehemiah shows us, do you see this? He's putting his hands to the plow of work and he recognizes, look at verse 4, hear us, O God. He's like, I'm dealing with some dynamics that are way beyond the physical for we're despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Some of you needed some fuel from Nehemiah to pray in your work setting this week, right? Some of the dynamics, there you go. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. Now look at verse 6. So, while he's praying, we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked underlined with all their heart. Do you see, church, that hit the resistance, because he grasped the nature of it, fueled prayerfulness. The resistance fueled a prayerful dependence. When you recognize the forces you're up against are not just physical, it's to the posture of prayer that you go. And the Bible is filled with the narrative that there's more going on in our world and the realities that we face, and certainly in our work setting, there's way more going on beyond flesh and blood. And if you believe that, then you and I will be men and women of prayer. So what does that look like? So you're sitting in a staff meeting on Tuesday. Staff meeting turns tense. The leader of the staff meeting turns the attention on you. You start feeling your blood pressure rise. You start feeling the the temperature, like the, the redness of your neck growing. You feel it. You feel this inside of you. And in that moment, you whisper a quiet prayer. Say, Lord, would you just help me right now respond the way you'd want me to respond? There's more going on here than just the staff meeting dynamic. Or maybe you're facing a really important decision at work. You've gathered all the input. It's time to make the call. You've been entrusted to make the decision. You feel the weight of the decision and the dominoes that come from it. You pause in that moment and you say, Lord, would you please show me the way? Would you please guide my steps? Or maybe you're really frustrated in a place the project at work is going, and you're like frustrated about what's going on, people are not carrying their own weight, they're not handling their responsibilities the way they needed to, and you want to have a meeting with the project leader because you think the thing's so far off the rails. And so before you step into that meeting with the project leader, you're having a moment of prayer in the quietness of your own heart, something like, Lord, would you grant me the wisdom to speak with clarity here and the humility to listen with grace? It's that. It's Nehemiah modeling the second principle of headwinds. He's modeling what it means to be present to God while he's present to his work. That's the second principle of headwinds. Present to God, present to the work. Where we cultivate an attentiveness, an awareness, a communion with God. In the language of the New Testament, it's Paul saying, you pray continually. What does that mean? That you're just living in the prayer room at the church? No, it means you're modeling Nehemiah 4. While you're rebuilding the wall, you're saying, oh God, help and bless the work of my hands. I cannot do this without you. I put Dallas Willard's 
statement about job discipleship in your notes again because I believe it's the best one-sentence statement regarding job discipleship I've come across. Look what he says. Two main elements of job discipleship. One, work diligently with Jesus' help. Two, offer gentle non-cooperation with evil. And listen, you and I will not lack for opportunities to cooperate with evil during our work weeks. That's just every Tuesday. I mean, there'll just be Sambalot and Tobai and Geshem. Have you noticed how they're waiting for you around every corner? <laughs> Have you noticed that when you want to uproot and say, I'm going to leave that old team or that old company and that old drama and those old issues, and you go to the new place and the new setting and the new team and the new project, what do you find there? All the same, right? Sambalot, Tobai, and Geshem are waiting for you there too. My grandma used to tell me when she would have conversations with some of her friends on this, she'd, say, she'd tell her friends, you know, the grass isn't always greener over there. There's just more to mow. That's what she would tell them. There's just more to mow. And for some of you, that's kind of the setting you're in. You're looking at your work circumstances, and you're like, Pastor Eric, you don't understand. Like, I'm present to God in the midst of my work. You ought to be in my work. There's nothing God-centered about anything about my work. I would just say, well, you're there. And it's chaos. We covered that before. Genesis 3, the dynamics of your work environment are going to be headwind-oriented, thorns and thistles, sweat on the brow. That's normal work. It doesn't matter the setting, the company, the ministry, the whatever, large, small. It doesn't matter. Wherever you go, it's going to be chaotic. It's going to be complicated. It's going to be messy. It's going to be difficult. You're going to be exhausted. There's more than flesh and blood going on. So we've got to cultivate this prayerfulness in the midst of the work, present to God while we're present to the dynamics before us. And did you notice the kind of work ethic his group, Nehemiah and his group were displaying? They built half the wall, and what did it say they did? They worked with all their heart. It's a wholeheartedness they put to the work. The headwinds didn't slow down or discourage uh, the intensity with which they put their work, put their hands to the work. It magnified it. They were working with all their heart. That's what it means to have a Christian work ethic. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. I think the HR departments today in the world should be able to point to followers of Jesus and say they set the standard, they set the bar for what it means to get after it and work, produce, and accomplish and create. Like when it comes to work ethic, I think followers of Jesus should be top shelf. Why? Because we're made in the image of God. Genesis 1, work. We're stamped with the Imago Dei. Our work is an act of worship that we work, produce, accomplish, and create to imitate Him in our work. I mean, that lifts up. There's no such thing as sacred and secular. It's all sacred and consecrated unto Him. And so slothfulness and laziness should never be a commentary connected to Christian work. We should be setting the bar. Now, students... This applies to you as well in your high schools, in your middle school. Students, your primary domain of work right now in your younger formative years is the classroom. I'm sorry that some of your classes are so exceedingly boring. I know, I was there too. All of us adults have gone through a scholastic journey where sections of your education were, I'm never going to use this the rest of my life. We know I actually think they know. (laughs) But here's the point. As a student, you're to approach, hear this now, students, 
You're to approach your schoolwork with a wholehearted devotion like Nehemiah 4 says. It doesn't matter how dysfunctional the teacher is. It doesn't matter the drama that's going on in the classroom. It doesn't matter how irrelevant the subject matter. You put your hands to the plow and you give it your best. Because Colossians 3 says you're not working unto the human circumstances and human masters. It's the Lord Christ that you are serving. And so students, the way you approach your classroom work and your homework and your schedule and your priorities and your diligence about the details, all of that is your act of worship. No amen from the students on that one, I can tell right now. They're giving me the look like, move it on, pastor, so... Right? It's not just the adults, right? Students' domain and work, but for us in the work setting, for moms and dads who are staying home, it doesn't matter the definition of your domain of work. Wherever your space that you're moving into the space of creating and shaping in the name of Jesus, that space you're moving into, you're going to do it with a kind of spirit and intensity and focus of Nehemiah 4. And you're like, well, you got Sambalot, Tobiah, and Geshem coming at him. And he's like, yep, we're going to work with wholehearted devotion. we got half the wall built. We're praying our guts out. We're present to God, and we're present to our work. So resistance indicates progress. And while we're progressing in the work, we're recognizing we're deeply dependent on God. So we're present to Him while we're present to our work. And now watch what happens. Verse 7, when Sambalot, Tobiah, and the Arabs, meaning Geshem, the Ammonites and the men of Ashdod heard the repairs to Jerusalem's wall had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed. They were very angry. Theme in the story. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble. So listen, have you noticed this with trouble? Like a common enemy brings uncommon parties all together. Have you noticed that? So in this work setting, like, oh, we want to stop Nehemiah from getting this wall rebuilt. And now you've got a whole list of characters that when you study the history on these groups, there's no reason they should be working together. They all don't like each other, but they like each other enough to come together and fight Nehemiah. And sometimes that's the dynamics going on in our work setting. You've got some people who get aligned. It's a tribe mentality. It's a groupthink mentality. And people get all grouped up and... They start aligning themselves to push back against you and your work and what you're trying to move into. And what does he do? What's Nehemiah do? But we prayed to our God and posted, underline prayed, and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Do you see that? Present to God, present to his work. It's just a theme running through here. And then verse 10, watch what happens. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, now, Watch what happens. The strength of the laborers is giving out, and there's so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Verse 11, also our enemy said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and will kill them and put an end to the work. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. That's not a super motivating speech for the workers. You with me? So do you see what's happening here? For some of you, verse 10 to 12, like that's a summary of the week you just lived. Like you encountered resistance from the outside, Sambalot, Tobiah, and Geshem, and now things are unraveling on the inside. It's like people within the project team, 
They're super overwhelmed with the work. They're frustrated at the circumstances. They're kind of bound in fear and they want to give up. I wish that had happened in our project teams today. Right? You can counter circumstances and you've got all kinds of issues, headwinds coming against you, and then all of a sudden the team you thought was all working together in the midst of the headwinds, they all start unraveling. They all start going at each other and going at Nehemiah. So things are unraveling on the outside and unraveling on the inside. And you want to talk about leadership, watch Nehemiah now. Watch what he does when he steps forward into that mess. Verse 13, therefore... I, Nehemiah, stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall. Watch what he does here. At the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. And you thought your project team had an issue on Wednesday. At least no one said to you, hey, get your swords, spears, and bows and come to the office on Wednesday. That's what was going on with this group. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, Now watch this. Don't be afraid of them. Underline, remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Boy, isn't that some of the cry that you're hearing coming out of the people of Ukraine? You kind of see that, especially the followers of Jesus. You know, the Alliance has got people in the Ukraine area, and we've got relationships with pastors there, and some of the stories coming out, it's this Nehemiah-type heart cry. That we're going to remember the Lord who is great and awesome. That God plus anybody is a majority. That God is with us. We're going to remember who is with us and we're going to fight. Do you see that? There's a remembering. This is the posture of dependence on God. And then there's this fight element. There's this responsibility they know to the work at hand. Remember that greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. Remember, never will he leave you, never will he forsake you. Remember that faithfulness surrounds him. Remember, he's our rock, our refuge, our fortress. Remember, he's Emmanuel, God with us. Can you just see Nehemiah just pumping him up? Remember the Lord who's great and awesome, that God plus anybody's a majority. And what? Grab the sword, grab the spear, get the hammer, get the saw, and fight, and build, and work. Fight for the light of Christ's presence in your workplace, your classroom, your locker room. Fight to work with great diligence. Fight for gentle non-cooperation with evil. Fight to keep remembering that it's the Lord Christ you are serving. Fight to get done what you know God wants you to get done. Nehemiah and the teams, get the wall rebuilt, get the gates restored, get the temple put back together, get about it. Remember the Lord and get about and be faithful to the work. Do you see that in the midst of the headwinds? It's phenomenal leadership. He actually steps towards the chaos puts his head right down in the face of the headwinds and pushes even further forward into all of it. That's an amazing picture of leadership. And then verse 15, what happens here? Verse 15, when our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot, and notice this, that God had frustrated it. We all returned to the wall, each to his own work. So who was ultimately helping them through their headwinds? As Kevin Johnson and his co-workers testify, it was the sovereign Lord who was helping him in the midst of the headwinds. Did you realize that this week, Ang? If you're bringing God into your Mondays, I pray that you are. I know it's hard. I know it's tough sledding in some of your settings. I know it's super complicated and difficult and messy. 
But here's what Nehemiah would want to remind you. You are not alone. The Lord is there to help you. And you work diligently with Jesus' help. You're not facing those headwinds alone. You're not facing Sambalot, Tobiah, and Geshem alone. The Lord God Almighty, who is great and awesome, He is with you. And He will help you and He will guide you. I wouldn't want to go through my work days without that. So don't just leave God in the car with a great worship song on your way to the office and a quick prayer. He goes with you into that work setting. And then verse 21, we draw this to a close with this. So we continued. Here's what he did. We continued with the work. Watch what happens. Half the men holding spears from the first light of dawn till the stars came out. All right, you see that? That's the day shift. And then what? At that time, he said to all the people, have every man and his helper stay inside Jerusalem at night so they can serve us as guards by night and workmen by day. So there's your long shift. You got a night shift, you got a day shift, and here's what it says, neither I nor my brothers nor men nor the guards with me took off our clothes. Each had his weapon even when he went for water. Hey, anybody been there? You've been in those settings with your work where you got to sleep with your work clothes on. Uh, there's, there's, no, there's no time for showering and changing up in Nehemiah. Hey, go to sleep with the work clothes on. Go to the watering hole with the work clothes on. Half the shift is morning till night. The other half is night till morning. Everybody got it? There's a picture of diligence, intentionality, understanding his work. And by the way, a good chunk of them on their face before God and saying, God, if you don't come through, we're toast. There's no way we're going to get this thing done. And so this is the third element. So resistance indicates progress. Present to God and present to the work. And then thirdly, resilience. Do you see this? The resilience that's built through the opposition. I define resilience this way. I put it in your notes. Growing stronger as you grow older. Growing stronger as you grow older. You see, with God and the storyline with his people, which by the way, do you know that in the Old Testament history line, this is the end of the chronological history of the Old Testament. I know it's not the end of the placement in the book. That's a conversation for another day. But Nehemiah is the end of the chronology of the Old Testament. What follows this Nehemiah is 400 years of silence. And Alexander the Great comes to power and the Greeks overthrow the Persians and then Caesar and the Romans come to power and that's the setting that Jesus of Nazareth was born into, a Greco-Roman world. Nehemiah's journey here of rebuilding the wall and restoring the gates and rebuilding all of this, this is the 400 years of silence follows. So in God, picture, the Lord has got, he's trying to get a nation built. He's trying to get a people who will represent him well and display his glory and his majesty to all the other peoples of the earth. Now you have to, before this rebuilding starts, it doesn't look super great. Good chunk of his people are 700 miles in the middle of Iraq. And the temple's a mess, and the wall's broken, the gates are burnt. It's total chaos. And God's like, I'm not done with it yet. I'm going I'm to get my people back. Zerubbabel, come back. Ezra, come back. Nehemiah, come back. And we're going to get this wall rebuilt, and we're going to get these gates restored, and we're going to get the temple looking like the temple should look like. You see all this? God's got all this work to be done. But hear this. It's way more than just getting the work done. It's who they are going to become while they get the work done done. Resistance here, in this case, the opposition built some things called resilience inside of them. God needed a more resilient Israelite people. He needed to have a little more metal. They had a little more resolve, a little more grit. 
Well, exile will do that to you, and rebuilding projects like this will do that to you, and no doubt the calluses and scars this group built through it. I mean, the things God was up to, do you see that? Application to our lives, it's not just about getting your Monday through Friday piles of work done and being productive. It is about, but it's not just about that. It's about who you in Christ are becoming while you work. Because when we get to the end of the run, church, when we get to the end of our one and only life, this week we had three passings in our own congregation, and when you sit with families and you converse about the very last breath and those moments, you look back and you're not going to talk about all the sales quotas that you knocked down. You're not going to take all the software that you developed. You're not even going to, you know, point to all the construction projects you completed. All those things are good and important, but they're not as important as this. At the end of your one and only life, you are going to stand before the God who created you and the Savior who gave you grace. And what are you going to present? You're going to present the kind of person you have become. That's what you're going to present. Your offering to the Lord is who you have become in this journey, in this one and only life. It makes sense to me then. God's like, well, you're going to spend a third of your life in an environment called work. He's going to get busy about using the 90,000 hours of work to form and shape this becoming project. Are you tracking with me? In this case, resilience. Can you imagine the character in this group of people who weathered the storm with Nehemiah? Can you imagine what was developed in them? God saw it. It was really important for the next chapter. They didn't know, but they're heading into 400 years of silence. You think they're going to need some resilience in that 400 years? Alexander the Great and Caesar and all that's going to be jumping off, he's like, I got to get some things built in the depth of their hearts, in their character. Listen to how John Henry Jowett put it. I love this quote. He was a preacher early 1900s in England. He said, it is possible to evade a multitude of sorrows through the cultivation of an insignificant life. Indeed, if a man's ambition is to avoid the troubles of life, the recipe is simple. Shed your ambitions in every direction. Cut the wings of every soaring purpose and seek a life with the fewest contacts and relations. If you want to get through the world with the smallest trouble, hear this. You must reduce yourself to the smallest compass. Tiny souls can dodge through life. Bigger souls are blocked on every side. As soon as a man begins to enlarge his life, his resistances are multiplied. And so, spoiler alert, church, Nehemiah got the wall built. He got it done. Two miles, 50 feet high, 10 to 15 feet thick. In 52 days. Yeah, you heard me right. 50 two days, maybe even under budget. (laughs) I don't know. Text doesn't say that. I'm just giving him credit. Because Nehemiah learned the headwinds all along the way weren't there to thwart the progress. They were a sign that he was making progress. Worship team, come on back. One final story, and then I'm done. Many of you know the name Thomas Edison because he has so much history when it comes to electronics and light bulbs in our world and all that comes with it. Well, his son, Charles Edison, wrote a biography about his dad, Thomas Edison's life. And in the biography, he tells this story about a freezing December night in 1914. 
And there's some images as I read through this that are going to come up on the screen because in December 1914, there was a massive fire in his father's work, like his warehouse work, and it was so big, eight surrounding communities worth of fire trucks and fire forces couldn't put the fire out. So there's a picture of it, like the massive, that's Thomas Edison's workshop, warehouse, his whole life work is right there, and it's all going up in flames. It's a raging inferno. And here's what his son Charles writes about that night. He says, quote, when I couldn't find father, I became concerned. Was he safe? With all his assets going up in smoke, would his spirit be broken? He was 67, no age to begin anew. Then I saw him in the plant yard running toward me. Where's mom? He shouted. Go get her. Tell her to get her friends. They'll never see a fire like this again. So here's the headlines from the newspaper, right? So it's a $7 million loss in 1914. Does that tell you the scope of this fire? His entire life work up in flames. And his son Charles goes on to write, it's 5.30 the next morning. The fire's barely under control. He calls all of his employees together. And he announces this, gets them all together. We're rebuilding One man was told to lease all the machine shops in the area. Another man, he said, get the wrecking crane from the Erie uh, Railroad Company. And then just as he was, you know, ordering, giving all these orders and directions out, he has one afterthought. He says, oh, by the way, anybody know where we can get some money? (laughs) And later on, he explains, this is son quoting father, you can always make capital out of disaster. We've just cleared out a bunch of old rubbish. We'll build bigger and better on the ruins. With that, he rolled up his coat for a pillow, curled up on a table, and immediately fell asleep. So from Edison's fire to Kevin Johnson's plane crashing in a field in Nebraska to Nehemiah's wall rebuilding project, the thread through it all is the greater the headwinds, the greater the progress. So when you put your worship on Sunday with your work on Monday, you rejoice when the wind gets strong in your face because it's an indicator we're making amazing progress. And so I leave with you this week a prayer of vocation. A prayer of vocation two weeks. I call this one a prayer of perspective. I put it in your notes. I want to encourage you this week, like you've been doing as you're getting your workday going, take a picture of this, put it on your phone, put it somewhere in your car, or if you're working from home, put it somewhere where you're going to see it at the start of your day. And I'm calling it a prayer of perspective, and let's commit together to pray, being present to God while we're present to our work with this. Lord, thank you for the gift of work when it's going well and when it's not. Help me to see each person I interact with today through your eyes. Grant me strength to respond to all the situations of this day with wisdom and grace, that more of your life would be reflected in more of my life. May my words, thoughts, attitudes, and actions be honoring to you. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you so much for these moments with Nehemiah. Thank you for the picture. Thank you for the perspective. Thanks for your sovereign grace and goodness over Kevin and his company and those employees. And we don't take for granted all the details and all of that. And thank you for the reminder, uh, the gift of headwinds, an indicator of progress. Help us this week. Enter into our work with Nehemiah-like dependence and worship. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.